0: Как-то вечерком с милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели, И приведя их на момент прийти, И сердца
1: наши замоле. Hello,
2: and welcome to the SRB Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Margaret Budik. She just came back from being away for the summer, uh, and now Rusana is away. So, Margaret, how was your summer? What'd you do? Why were you gone?
1: I had a great time. I was in Middlebury doing more Russian studies kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, it was great, but I'm also very happy to be back.
2: Is it, is it true that you're not allowed to speak English at all?
1: It's true. Not a word.
2: And how do they monitor you?
1: It's not really monitored. It's kind of the will of the people. You ah, know, we 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 hold it amongst ourselves because why else would you go somewhere for seven weeks? You know, you don't just do it for no reason. You you got to want to.
2: Right. And and what is the specific name of the program? Just to give them a plug.
1: Uh, it's the Middlebury Russian Program.
2: Now, for those out there who who don't who aren't familiar with Middlebury's Russian Program, it's literally one of the best. In the United States, if you want to go and learn Russian language, that's the place to go. Do you do you think, Margaret, was your experience?
1: I definitely think so. The language schools, Middlebury language schools in general, uh, they're top notch, excellent. Uh, The amount of improvement that I saw in everyone, including myself, is exponential. And I I did not anticipate that with a bunch of American speakers we could have. Uh, You know, non-native speakers, I mean, we could have really progressed at the, you know, level that we did, but it became, speaking English became the foreign language, you know, it became uncomfortable to speak English. So that's a lot of fun.
2: I never got a chance to go to Middlebury but um it sounds it's I've always I've only heard great things about it so I'm glad to hear that
1: It's a great time and the classes are interesting and something I really like about it and I'm going to be sad to have to go back into regular academia is that the the grades are not Really, the main focus, you know, it's kind of a goodwill effort. We all trust that we're here to try our hardest, and everyone is doing so. And without the pressure of, you know, constantly needing to get the A or study for an exam, it feels a lot more real.
2: Yeah, you have a people who are actually very dedicated to spending their time there learning, uh, rather than I don't know, jerking off. Though I'm sure that that there's that as well. I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> I'm so. sure there is. All right. Well, it's great. It's great to have you back, and I'm glad to hear that you had a, a nice, productive summer. Um, as you know, out there, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and members of the SRB Table of Ranks who generously give monthly contributions from anywhere between five to twenty-five dollars. If you like what we do here at the SRB podcast. Please go to our Patreon page at slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and find that table of ranks button up there in the, I think it's the right hand corner of the website, and uh, press that and throw us some cash. I, uh, Margaret will appreciate it since this is how I give her, you know, I don't know, some coffee money, I think is probably the extent. <laughs> well, um, well, Margaret, I have to say for this episode, this week's episode, um, it, it, it's about Soviet engagement with Africa, particularly uh, in terms of economic development of West Africa and the support of anti-colonial movements, uh, particularly in, the, in our case today around um, the former Portuguese Empire. So um, this, is a, this is a topic that I find incredibly uh, fascinating, um, and I hope you did too. So why don't we just jump into things and you introduce our guests.
1: Alessandro Iandolo is a historian of the Soviet Union and the world at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies at University College London. His research focuses on the USSR's engagement with Africa, Asia, and Latin America during the Cold War, and he's author of Arrested Development, the Soviet Union in Ghana, Guinea, and Mali, 1955 to 1968, published by Cornell University Press. Then we have Natalia Tilipnieva, is a lecturer in international history at the University of Strathclyde. Her research focuses on the Soviet Union's engagement with African anti-colonial movements during the Cold War and history of socialism, especially in Africa. She's the author of Cold War Liberation, the Soviet Union and Collapse of the Portuguese Empire in Africa, 1961 to 1975, published by the University of North Carolina Press here 's Natalia Telepnieva and Alessandro Iandola
2: well this is this is really great to talk to you um as as Alessandro and I were talking a little bit before we started about how now there 's more research between into africa and soviet slash russian relations and this is just really a a welcome thing and and of course more. Uh, engagement with scholarship on, say, Soviet relations with the wider third world, which is which is a really, really great and interesting subject. So you both have uh, books on Soviet relations with Africa. Natalia, your book is called Cold War Liberation, The Soviet Union and the Collapse of the Portuguese Empire in Africa, 1961 to 1975. And Alessandro, yours is Arrested Development. The Soviet Union in Ghana, Guinea, and Mali, 1955 to 1968, and just to start our conversation, I'm I'm always curious to learn how people stumbled in, fell in, got interested, were tricked. I don't know in their subject matter. So Natalia, let's just start with you. Like, how did you get get into this subject of of Soviet relations in Africa and decolonization?
0: Uh, thank you, Sean. Always uh, a challenging question. I think. I was uh, first interested in uh, this topic when hearing stories, I would say, from my grandfather, who as a Red Army officer during the Second World War would tell me about encountering the Americans on the Elbe and some of the racism that he witnessed towards black soldiers uh, in the American army. And as a Soviet Jew, he actually um, was adamant always to stress racial equality between nations, um, even though, ironically, he himself was a victim of Soviet anti Semitism. So there was a kind of a di- di- dichotomy here. But I think still my interest uh, was, you know, originated from those stories and to understand how somebody like him. Uh, you know, was so, why it was so important for somebody like, like him, this topic, you know. And um, uh, obviously, later on, when I began to study, I wanted to learn more about why basically the Soviet Union became involved with distant revolutions in Africa and how that played into the Soviet project.
2: Mm-hmm. And Alessandra, how about you? How did you st- stumble into this?
3: Yeah, that's uh, that's always an interesting question. Uh, so it, it started. I mean, this book started as a as a PhD dissertation uh, project. Um, I I was always interested in sort of radical politics of the of the left, and that's what brought me to Russia and specifically Soviet history. I also always had an interest in the Cold War, more in a classic sense, you know. Bombs, spies, war—that um, that, that kind of stuff. Uh, but the years in which I started the PhD—that's the you know 2005, 2015. That decade, uh, there was a lot. There was a boom in in histories of the Cold War from the point of view of Africa, Asia, and Latin America. There was a lot uh, coming out in those years, and that that literature really showed me that the, the most radical and and from my point of view, most interesting uh, sort of things that happened, uh, political projects during the Cold War happened far away from Europe, right, uh, in, in Africa, in Asia, in, in Latin America. And obviously, Ghana, Guinea, Mali occupied a little bit of a special place because they were among the very first countries to become independent after after World War II uh, um, in, in the African continent. Uh, and so I decided that it would be a very interesting idea to combine uh, uh, what was left of Soviet radicalism with this new emerging radicalism in, in West Africa. Could the Soviet Union retrieve some of its, you know, its revolutionary enthusiasm in, in supporting some newly independent uh, countries in Africa? That's that's how that's how I started, yeah.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I've been looking at um, the, a lot of the common turn stuff of the 1920s and 30s, and I was surprised to learn that there is engagement with African communist parties, such as there are, particularly South Africa, of course, which had the biggest one. But you know, delegates from other parts of Africa are coming to Turn congresses. Um, but Soviet interest in Africa really does intensify with the Cold War. Um, what are some of the, uh, uh, Alessandra? What are some of the col- con- What are some of the continuities and changes in the Soviet interest in Africa in those periods from say? You know, over the the, the World War Two divide.
3: Yeah, that's a, that's another good question. I, I mean, I would say, from from my point of view, that it's definitely more changed in continuity, um, and it's not even the. Cold War in kind of a classic sense, you know, 1935 to, to 91, uh, or or thereabout. I, I'd say it's really it's the it's the Khrushchev era that changes uh, a lot. Um, I mean, obviously, as you as you were saying, uh, uh, people in the Soviet Union were always interested uh, in in uh, liberation from empire, in in, in sort of uh, the exploitation of black people, sort of internationally. But sort of besides theoretical speculation, I feel there was relatively little. Uh, um, that the USSR uh, could or would do this, uh, for, for quite a long time. And I'd say that sort of carries on into the uh, early post-war era, as long as Stalin is around, essentially, right? Um, it's only in the sort of mid-1950s with, with sort of Khrushchev's rise to power that things begin to change. Um, and I'd say it's because the Soviet Union is now... a more prosperous, uh, more affluent, more technologically advanced, more self-confident uh, type of society, type of country, ready to at least try to offer um, something to, in this case, newly newly independent countries or emerging societies. Um, but I, until then, I see uh, a, a lot of theoretical engagement relatively little sort of practical engagement. So I see the big change coming maybe a decade after nineteen thirty-five or so. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, Natalia, you, you know, Khrushchev does play this really important role. I mean, the engagement with the Third World really heats up. Um, it, you know, Alessandro said is, it's not so much the Cold War as it is the Soviet Union is actually in a position to do something practical about the relations with Africa. Um, do you see something similar? In t- in, if you can, talk about why Khrushchev takes this, this turn towards, say, the third world.
0: Yes, I think there's always a, a question or a debate in terms of this dichotomy between ideology and uh, reality or practical gains. And I think it's probably a false dichotomy because uh, from the perspective of the Soviet leadership, of Khrushchev, whatever aids the cause of the Soviet Union will also aid the cause of socialism and spreading socialism around the world, and also the other way around. So I think on one hand, Khrushchev sees with the colonization um, this as a practical opportunity to find new distant uh, allies, um, allies around the world um, on one hand, but also on the other hand, I think he is genuinely you know, coming from the generation, pre-war, ge- you know, interwar generation of people who were inspired by the Comintern and the anti-racist campaigns. I think he is quite genuinely inspired to help uh, revolutions around the world, anti-colonial revolutions around the world, help with Spreading socialism. Obviously, Alessandro has written about the economic side of the story. So I think you know there is a kind of a genuine, uh, genuine belief that at least initially that socialism really has potential um, in the con- continent. And I think that kind of enthusiasm, at least initially, it's taken up by this uh, range of of bureaucrats. Uh, from in the party in the international department, the successor to the common turn, but also other men and women in the other institutions of the state and the party the kgb uh, the uh, the foreign ministry cultural institutions who all for different reasons become involved and many of them be quite quite inspired at kind of supporting that that project. Um, in, in the continent. So I think it's important to understand not just Khrushchev's mind, but also the mind of these men and women who become committed oftentimes to this cause of African liberation or African development and so on. So in my book, I spend quite a bit of time trying to discern and analyze the, the worldview of these these men and women
2: yeah this is something you i think is really important that you emphasize that it's these kind of mid-level people who have either a professional or personal or ideological in- interest in the african continent um what about for for economics alessandro since you're looking at the de- economic development what role do say soviet economists and other uh, say academics or professionals play in you know pitching the idea of helping west african nations
3: yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. It's an interesting dynamic there. Um, to an extent, I, I, I'd almost tempted to say that it's it's a little bit the other way around, the way I see it. It's it's more kind of coming from the top and the need to create uh, a group of people, a, a class of academics and, and sort of professional thinkers who are able to understand and advise uh, um, and, and give recommendations. And that is why, uh, yeah, again, in the ni- mid-1950s, uh, um, the Soviet government creates or recreates a, a number of sort of institutes and, and organizations dedicated. Um, they're, they're essentially area studies institutes, right? A little bit on, on as we're, we're all familiar with in, in other parts of the world. Uh, they also they also existed in, in the Soviet Union, and I mean the idea would be that these people train there uh, um, and, and would eventually be able to. Um, advice uh, and and recommend uh, what to do in terms of sort of practical action in terms of policy and so on I think the plan uh, maybe took a little bit longer to to uh, um, come to fruition uh, because I think, for example, you know, in, in the context of my my research, I, I I looked a little bit at the Institute of Africa, obviously, which was the sort of leading academic uh, uh, and and also, in a way, consulting bodies uh, uh, for anything related to to uh, uh, engagement with and, and in Africa. I mean, there's a lot of enthusiasm, uh, there's a lot of uh, interest, uh, but but resources are scarce. Uh, Going for field work in Africa is is, uh, almost impossible. Uh, Very few people speak a a language other than than English or French, for example. Uh, You know, they have every year, they have this kind of town hall meeting and institute, and they they always say, oh, we're going to write 15 books. And then the year later... They're still at zero. And then, you know, uh, maybe they've got a couple of chapters in and, you know, then a decade has passed and you kind of struggle to see uh, sort of the fruits of that engagement. I mean, you know, we know we know how academic work is like. Uh, It it wasn't that different in in the Soviet Union, too. Uh, But seeing it, you know, with the eyes of someone kind of reading and, and writing about it. A long time a long time later uh, yeah it's uh, it's uh, it was a little bit hit and miss I, I i feel at least in the first decade decade and a half or so. natalia talk
2: about this because you do like i said you do spend a lot of focus on these these mid-level what what role did they play in your story with decolonization
0: in my story they play i would say a really important role and partly because for somebody for the kind of top soviet leadership I th- perhaps with the exception of this moment in the 50s, Africa was really not a priority. Uh, I think most researchers think that their topic is the most important one in the world. So <laughs> there's a little bit of danger, but I think it's important to remember that it was not the priority for the likes of you know, Brezhnev, especially, you know, except for the pe- perhaps moments of crisis, it was a little bit high on the agenda. But I would say that, but it became important for these kind of mid-level officials who made a career out of it oftentimes. Uh, So, and Alessandro is completely right. Uh, There was very little expertise in certain topics. For example, in my story, and I I look at Lusophone Africa, there were very few people who could fluently speak Portuguese um, in you know which is a fairly standard european language but uh, and that's why uh, the one the one man who became quite important in my story who became responsible on the soviet side uh, for kind of policy or kind of meeting and greeting these african revolutionaries from portuguese speaking africa was the one man who could speak portuguese fluently <laughs> in the early 60s so that's uh, that's quite funny so oftentimes they developed they began to develop, especially men and women working international department who stayed there for longer. They developed personal relationships with these African revolutionaries, personalities, leaders of, um, you know, in my case, uh, liberation movements in Angola, Mozambique, Guinea, Bissau. So their opinions became to matter because they would, of course, start writing uh, notes that would go up the chain. Um, and uh, in many cases, they could shape to a certain extent policy at the top because they 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 had their own personal preferences, opinions, and so on. So and partly because it wasn't a priority for the top leadership, their opinions probably mattered a lot more uh, because they became very. Quite knowledgeable um, about what was going on, you know, in Angola or in Mozambique, you know, areas where uh, Brezhnev, for example, you know, wouldn't really wouldn't wouldn't care as much about these places. Uh, so that's that's how, uh, in my story, these uh, these men and they were you know, overwhelmingly men became became important.
2: Um, you know, I, I'm kind of struck. You know, I I don't know why I didn't think of this before. Perhaps it's just you know didn't think of it. But Alessandra, when you said that basically the creation of area studies. <laughs> um, you know, we have, we, you know, just to do a bit of comparative work, you know, the Cold War really is the the, the creation of these types of institutions in a variety of, of countries, right? The United States, of course, all of its area studies programs really come to fore in the Cold War. Clearly, you have a Soviet. Is you see that in, in trying to conceptualize the Cold War um, and, and, both, and both of you, to some extent, are looking at aspects of this, um, the role of knowledge in the effort of the Cold War. Um, can you sp- speak to is this something that knowledge and professionalized expertise is drawn into the foreign policy sphere more and more in this period as part of the general Cold War?
3: Yeah, that's uh, that's a great that's a great idea, and I mean i don't, again I d don't, i don't know i mean in part it's uh it's a fascinating story you look at the United States, the rise of various studies uh, including on the soviet union itself and i mean there could be a parallel um in the in in the soviet union absolutely so the idea was definitely there, and to a certain extent it works one one thing that i I see for sure is that pretty much you know everyone. happens to engage with africa on one level or another at the beginning would recognize we we don't know enough enough we 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 need to know more about this right so so the acknowledgement is there that knowledge that knowledge matters But, but when it comes to um which i guess you know it's it could be again a story that's that's a lot more universal but then i think about this um sort of conferences that bring together, you know, people from the, from the Communist Party and I don't know, the foreign ministry and then some more technical ministries and a few academics. I mean, these people just yell at each other for hours. Uh, I mean, you know, <laughs> like well, that's very not too ac- different, but <laughs> there you go, right? <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, it, it gets it gets pretty acrimonious, right? I mean, you know, there is complaints about we don't have enough funding, and and I I, I think probably all three of us uh, can can empathize with that uh, to, to, to a very large extent. Uh, it it is twenty twenty two after all, um, and and on the other hand, the, the, the people, the people on the other side, and the more kind of governments Side. They're angry because they, they they accuse them of actually not understanding enough, right? You know, you're just a professor sitting in your office. You don't understand how things are on the ground, blah blah blah. I mean, you know, hey, could be anywhere, could be any country, but it happens. It happens in the Soviet context too.
2: Yeah, Natalia, do, do you feel that knowledge actually perkles up and and gets used in the implementation of Soviet policy, say in you know West West Africa and in the Portuguese Africa?
0: I think it's there is a very complicated relationship between uh, those area studies institute. Of course, the Institute of African Studies is the main one. And of course, you know, they, especially towards, you know, towards the mid to late 60s, they become increasingly an institute that's, that works for the benefit of, the party and the state for the benefit of the intern i mean one could uh, argue with that and disagree but i would say it increasingly becomes kind of a think tank that works for the party rather than an independent research institute that it was sort of originally envisioned to be to an extent so of course you know they write their own analysis for the party and the state there's debate whether how much this knowledge trans translated to above uh, I would say that there was a certain relationship where, for example, the head of the African Studies Institute had the relationship with, uh, with people in the foreign ministry because uh, he, you know, he, was, um, uh, he, he was previously working there. And there are some other so-called public uh, organizations like the Soviet Solidarity Committee where policy is debated and discussed. But I think when it came to actual policy, there is no direct relationship between these recommendations and policy. I think uh, if we want to talk about, uh, I'm not talking about economic policy or these kind of things, but when it comes to simple well, simple things of who do we give our weapons to, our economic aid to, when it comes to anti-Colombian movements, it's uh, much more about Uh, about what the International Department thinks, what uh, the staff in the International Department think who should receive this aid. Also, there's input from so-called men on the ground. For example, your KGB officer who is working directly, engaging directly with African revolutionaries. There's input from military intelligence officer on the ground. So all of these inputs are coming in to the International Department. Then they go high up. And area studies, institutes don't always win, uh, you know, in this kind of game, especially when it comes to policy. I'm not talking about economic policy. Alessandro knows this mm-hmm. stuff much better. Yeah,
2: I think that's a sentiment that we all can relate to here where we're like, hey, <laughs> you know, listen to us. We, we know what we're talking about and, and it just doesn't really translate. I want to talk about the USSR as a model. Uh, for not only for, you say, in your case, Natalia, the, the revolutionaries who are participating in these liberation movements, but also in your case, Alessandro, the model for the construction of a modern society. Um, talk about, Natalia, how the USSR served as inspiration, if at all, for these revolutionaries in, in, in fighting against Pol- the Portuguese empire.
0: This is a very complex question. I think Alessandro can speak much better to the economic side of the story. Uh, I would say that, and I've seen this many times in the documents and the discussions uh, on both sides, I think that, at least in my case, the Soviet Union uh, served as a model and the African revolutionaries were inspired by the Soviet nationalities policy. I think it's an important aspect that's often neglected. I think that kind of nationalities policy often resonated with, uh, in my case, Portuguese-speaking African liberation movements and their leaders, because in many of these cases, the leadership was often either mixed race or the leadership was dominated by a representative of a particular group, either regional or ethnic group. So within these liberation movements, there were always often tensions between different ethnicities and obviously the makeup of many of these African countries was very diverse and oftentimes problematic uh, from the perspective of there were very different visions within the liberation moments of what path to follow. So from the perspective of, uh, in my story, of Portuguese-speaking African revolutionaries, that kind of system where... At least on the surface, uh, of it, nationalities could exist and function in this family of nations. was was an attractive was an attractive model. Obviously, you know that doesn't mean that it was easily applied to the African context, or it was always used. But ironically, given what we know about the collapse of the USSR, this was an aspect of the Soviet makeup that was attractive to them
3: yeah that's uh that's a uh, that's a great um sort of theme to, to to think about so you know the first thing that comes to mind uh, talking about sort of revolution and, and and models is that is that you know i'm not sure i would i would think of the um sort of the people i, I look at in in west africa uh, as as necessarily as revolutionaries right um, I mean, the, the individuals, political groups, uh, 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 they were in charge, uh, they were in government uh, after having obtained independence in a peaceful way, you know, through sort of voting or agreements and and, and so on. Um, certainly the Soviet Union, people in the Soviet Union did not regard them as revolutionaries. Uh, if, if anything, they were bourgeois sort of leaders and political parties, uh, radicals for sure. They had radical politics, radical enough to receive support from the Soviet Union, but they were not going to have have a socialist revolution anytime soon. And what's interesting from the Soviet side um, is that that was okay. It was not regarded as a problem um, at the time. There were uh, sort of Soviet people who were more than happy to, you know, assist with, uh, with, with an economic transformation uh, um, into um, sort of a, a, an economy dominated by the state with collective forms of organizations and so on, but still a short of sort of classic, classic socialism. And um, obviously... West African politicians, activists, they would occasionally uh, frame themselves as revolutionaries and then their action as, as revolutionary uh, but they were ambivalent uh, about about socialism. Uh, it's a very complicated galaxy of people and, and ideas, but I'd say on, on average, uh, they tended to be more immediately interested in, for example, facilitating decolonization in the rest of Africa uh, and in building up their own their own countries, right, rather than sort of kind of global uh, uh, ambitions. They, they saw the USSR as a sponsor uh, for, for developing projects, for economic modernization, to use a sort of a complicated uh, um, expression, uh, and And that's the model uh, they aspire to an extent to replicate, sort of Soviet economic success um, rather than Soviet politics, so to say. That's what I would say.
0: I just want to add as a follow-up to Alessandra's point, of course, when we're talking about Africa and Africans and African revolutionaries, I think we're obviously obscuring the fact that there were many diverse trends and people and leaders within that context with ideas and ideologies of their own, of course, when it comes to, from economic perspective, uh, there were those who believed in so-called African socialism, which was, of course, very, very different from Soviet-style scientific socialism. And, uh, you know, these, you know, these were kind of homegrown indigenous ideologies in a way. So these, as Alessandro said, many of this uh, first generation of African leaders did not want to emulate exactly Uh, Soviet experience. But I would say that, you know, in my case, in the case of Portuguese-speaking radical African revolutionaries, there was the late 60s and partly due to the failure of African socialism, many of them increasingly spoke about scientific socialism rather than African socialism and um, kind of trying to build on that model. So we have to acknowledge the diversity you know, within within African political project when we're talking about, about Africa and African revolutionaries, as Alessandro said.
2: Hello, comrades, and welcome to the podcast you are currently listening to, I promise, This isn't a Russian invasion,
3: just a temporary occupation. I'm Roberto, one of the hosts of the podcast, Czar Power. And I'm Brendan, the other half of the podcast. Together, we're ranking the Russian rulers from Rurik to Putin. They will compete based on how well they fought, how successful they were in life, how much kompromat or blackmail they had on them, how handsome they were, and how long they ruled for.
2: After being scored, we decide whether they get to party it out in the Kremlin or get sent straight to the gulag. Those who make it to the Kremlin will need to duke it out for the position of best Russian ruler. You can find us on any podcast host as Tsar Power, on Twitter at Tsar Power Pod,
3: and on Facebook as Tsar Power. That's Tsar spelled T-S-A-R. Now, back to your regularly scheduled podcast. And if you hear a knock on your door, beware, the KGB is going to make your stay a bit more permanent.
2: And what about what about the role of china the role of China as an inspiration? Because you know in some of the things that i've I've read, there's this you know application of a, a a kind of racial framework where it's like, well, the Russians, they're just quote unquote white, right? Whereas China is a is a more appropriate or you I seem I feel more kinship to the Chinese project. Um, because they're also, you say, people of color, people who've been under colonial domination. What role is China? does China play?
0: I think the so-called Chinese model or Maoism was incredibly powerful ideology or model, especially in the early and mid-1960s and in some parts of Africa, especially in East Africa and we Tanzania. Uh, there were many who were really inspired by that kind of model, and especially for Guerrilla movements, like in my case, the, the Portuguese-speaking um, movements, you know, that was also very powerful influential for many people. And when I was talking to some of those, you know, former uh, guerrillas, uh, they would say, "Yes, you know, I was somebody who was very interested in, in Maoism and uh, his ideas around guerrilla warfare and peasant-based uh, guerrilla warfare." But at the same time, I think there is a complex complex process that's going on in the 1960s that you know Maoism is really powerful and then its influence sort of subsides uh, towards the end of the decade to an extent. And I think partly it's because, uh, again, we have to go back and look at these movements. Many of them have uh, really diverse diverse ethnic makeup. And when China puts a lot of emphasis on non-whites, you know, being non-white ideologists, I think it's often problematic for the leaders of these movements themselves. So uh, it becomes a problem because oftentimes those who want to challenge the leadership of these African movements, they uh, use those ideas uh, to challenge oftentimes you know mixed race, mixed race leadership. So that's that's part of, of of the problem with this Chinese kind of attempt to frame the Soviets as as white themselves as non white,
2: and uh, is does China have an influence in terms of how you know African economics and modernization? Are the Soviets concerned about China's influence in post colonial states, Alessandro?
3: Yeah, that's. Um, I always find it a little bit difficult to talk about China because, yeah, as, as, as Natasha was saying, uh, there is no doubt that sort of rhetorically, the, the, the argument that came from from the People's Republic of China about this like white uh, imperialist powers meddling into the affairs of African countries. Uh, it's impossible to deny, right? I mean, they're they're one hundred percent correct, and I mean, people people in Africa, people in West Africa, are absolutely um, in agreement uh, with that with that view. They're very concerned about the potential uh, risks of sort of building an engagement with, with the USSR as well as with other um, sort of white uh, Europeans or non-Europeans. Uh, at, at the same time, um, I mean, China has lots of ideas about revolution and particularly a violent revolution to be carried out. Um, again, the people I, I'm sort of more familiar with in Ghana, Guinea and Mali, they're in power. Revolution is the last thing they want to hear about, uh, uh, unless it's the one they argue they've carried out already, and there is absolutely no need <laughs> for, for new revolutions. Uh, um, so, so, there is that. Uh, there is also another problem, which which is closer to the to the strictly economic dimension, and and, and that's uh, um, I mean in the in in the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties, uh, what China can offer is limited. Uh, in, in terms of uh, uh, development assistance, uh, in terms of money, uh, capital, people, expertise. Uh, uh, and that's exactly what, what these governments in West Africa are looking for. Um, so they agree theoretically, with, with they might agree theoretically with Chinese physicians to an extent at least, but they still have the pressing need uh, to find uh, um, sponsors and find help. And China is not able To to offer that. So I find it difficult to see China as a um, sort of competitor uh, um, to to the Soviet Union and and, and the US as well, at least on the same scale. It it becomes maybe more so in, in, in the 70s as things move a little bit more into the military sort of sphere. But when it comes to development assistance in the 60s, 50s, I would say not so much.
2: And and they're not looking to say China as a model for or an inspiration for land reform or things like this?
3: I mean, you know, if you look at China at the time, 50s and 60s, uh, uh, what you see is first the Great Leap Forward and then the Cultural Revolution. And, and I mean, I challenge everyone to uh, uh, f- find a model <laughs> there, right? Uh, it's it, it's complicated. I mean, it's it's fascinating. It's it's violent. It's it's complex, but it's also very difficult to see there's some kind of coherent uh, strategy that you, you can employ at home. Uh, I'd also like to say, and then and then I'll 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 um we should switch Natasha. I think uh, um. You know, the Chinese model is supposedly about agriculture, right? Land reform, uh, peasant revolution, and so on. Uh, but I mean the Soviet Union at the time at least uh, uh, was, uh, I'd say just as interested in in agricultural development and and modernization mechanization. That's actually their prime area of interest in West Africa at least. I mean that's where most of the investment is channeled into is agricultural modernization uh, programs of, of different kinds. So even there, I don't see China as necessarily having a in the regional angle uh, it's it's a little bit derivative almost. yeah. that's what I would say.
0: Yes, I think this I agree with it. sounded that this is a, a complex question because when looking at some of the African revolutionaries that I study, you know those who come from Portuguese speaking Africa, in the 50s, many of them who traveled to China and there are only a handful but still influential uh, influential men, they are actually really inspired in many ways by the Great Leap Forward and what they see you know ironically, given you know the disaster that it became in China. They were really inspired by the grated forward, and I think by the kind of mobilization, popular mobilization, and discipline that it represented to them. And you know, even many years later, you know, when looked at some interviews, they still you know talked about that kind of the point of inspiration for them. But of course, it's difficult uh, to know how that later translated into actual policy. And arguably, you know examples of state building and agricultural building in tanzania were more influential to some uh, in mozambique rather than anything that was going on in in china Uh, so i would say it's it's a complete it's a complicated one i would like to add though as well and to alessandra's point about china's you know offering and what it could offer is that I would say that towards the late 1960s, and partly due to militarization of African politics and the military coups, the USSR became increasingly a major supplier of uh, weapons and military training to, uh, to militaries, to liberation movements, you know, especially to a select allies in Africa. And that kind of military engagement became became increasingly influential as far as soviets were concerned and china of course could provide some of that aid but they couldn't oftentimes provide the kind of advanced military technology that the the soviet union could provide and that mattered uh, to many of those men and women who were fighting, for example, in my case, the Portuguese, of course, a country that was equipped with very advanced technology from NATO. Um, so th- there is also a difference here as to what China and Cuba, of course, could provide models and ideas, but oftentimes they couldn't provide the goods necessary to fight these these wars.
2: Alessandra, what what did the Soviet Union want out of its engagement, economic engagement with West Africa? What was it looking to achieve?
3: Well, to achieve development. Uh, the, the, the but but why? Dimension. Like why do they care about the development of West Africa? <laughs> B- because it was right, uh, because that's what a good socialist uh, would want. Uh, I mean, I, at, at the end of the day, I think that's the that's the best answer I can give. It's about it's about ideas, ideas about you know the state of the world and the future of the world, and that's what you know that's the task of the Soviet Union to assist uh, in the in the, in the uh, development, uh, economic development of this country, so which eventually you know like uh, in. in, in give it time it will lead to a, a socialist transformation but for now some version of state capitalism is, is is good enough um that's i mean that's the that's really uh what's uh, what, what was in it for for them uh, the idea was that you know like th- these are uh, the, the three countries i mean this, this goes way beyond west africa but i mean the three countries i'm sort of interested in mostly uh, where. are relatively small uh, uh, in terms of population, relatively small economy compared to to others. And so they could be uh, sort of helped uh, uh, to a very significant extent, even with relatively limited investments, right? Uh, so, if it worked out there, then surely other countries uh, would follow the same the same path, right? I mean, if we can do it in Ghana, if we can do it in Guinea, if we can do it in Mali, then then sort of larger countries will, will want to do the same. Uh, but fundamentally, it was, uh, it was about right and wrong. <laughs> uh, however, sort of twisted, uh, uh, that idea may appear to us in 2022, but
2: is that similar? Is this ideology and say a moral imperative to support, say decolonization movements? Is is that also the inspiration in your case, or what's driving the Soviet interest, Natalia? In
0: I think that's a very complicated question because when we're talking about the Soviet Union, of course, it's not uh, it's not uh, some kind of it's not one block. It's not one Soviet Union. Uh, I like this idea of peaceful competition. Of course, especially in the 1950s, there's, there is this idea that you know the two systems, capitalism and socialism, can compete peacefully. And part of that peaceful competition is trying to uh, showcase and test um, your models, including in the third world. So I do like this idea of kind of framing it partly in terms of peaceful competition. So let's let's see which model can work better, you know, so you know, without you know having to destroy the world, you know, obviously that's part of destalinization and Khrushchev's idea of peaceful competition. But when it comes to when it comes to the third world and Africa in particular, I think it's it's difficult to to disconnect kind of ideology from practical Cold War aims. Of course, especially towards the late 1960s and 70s, for example, the military or military intelligence are quite interested in getting uh, sort of signals intelligence uh, points, bases, um, including you know in, um, in the Atlantic, but also in the Indian Ocean. So part of it is also about uh, getting uh, kind of access to these countries. So but at the same time, I think oftentimes it's framed, you know, and I think people genuinely, you know, the Soviets believe that this is for the benefit of mankind and for the benefit of of kind of spreading socialism as well. So, the it, it depends on who you're looking at, of course. You know, as you know, oftentimes we are uh, we are kind of. We look at our own archives, so we're looking at, you know, somebody from the international department, they have a certain set of priorities, others from the KGB or the military intelligence have their own set of priorities, but I think what all of them share is a certain view, worldview, certain ideologies, how they see the world, especially Western countries, in fundamentally Marxist-Leninist terms.
2: Yeah. And, and what about from the African side, Natalia, you know, because providing aid and shipping weapons and all of this is nice. But once it, the stuff gets on the ground, you know, agent, local agents are the ones who, who actually do something with it. So what did your the, what was the agency of, of, you know, Africans on the ground when it came to Soviet aid?
0: Yeah, I think this will not be. Uh, novel point to say that, of course, when we talk about the Soviets, African agency really is primary here and really matters because at the end of the day, you know, in my case, and I'm sure Lissandro can, can also speak to that, that these were Africans who were pushing very hard for this aid and often not getting, you know, what, what they requested for. So that's why, you know, uh, different actors come in, um, and, you know, including Western actors, China comes off kind of helping, uh, get some of the weapons or, you know, it comes to China or Cuba and also humanitarian aid when it comes to the Nordic countries, but they are absolutely fundamental in pushing for that aid for arguing their case. Oftentimes with these kind of liaisons, Soviet liaisons, uh in also in Eastern Europe and Cuba and China and so on. So they're absolutely fundamental to that, to that story of how that aid actually gets on the ground. And um of course local local regional African leaders are, you know, in my story, really, really important uh when it comes to deciding you know, who uh, who gets uh, who gets preferential treatment, um, and or or not?
2: Mm-hmm. And what about the economic side, Alessandro? In this, because as you, as you as you said repeatedly, I mean, these people are in power. They have countries to run. Um, they have their own very localized domestic interests. So how do they balance and say push back and even you know demand or or however? How do they negotiate the Soviet uh, role?
3: Yeah, that, it's it's very complicated, of course. Um, so you know, if you think if you think of the, the sort of the people in power, uh, you know, Kwame Nkrumah in in Ghana, Modibo Keita in Mali, in Ahmed Sekou in, in in Guinea. For a while, at least, they essentially uh, shared the same agenda with, with the Soviet Union, right? I mean, the task ahead of us is one of economic development. We have to invest in these areas, build this infrastructure, factories, and so on and so forth. So, so seemingly there was uh, um, a great deal of agreement, uh, but obviously those were uh, uh, very complicated societies uh, uh, um, from, a, from a political point of view, meaning that you know maybe maybe the people at the top uh, uh, were on board uh, with sort of building a relationship an economic relationship with the Soviet Union uh, it didn't mean that you know there are all of their advisors and collaborators and, and and sort of people on the ground and, and sort of interest groups uh, and, and and regional groups and so on uh, were on board with the same with the same agenda there was a, there was a great deal of political contestation in different periods and and, and different countries uh, um But the conversation about development, the shape of development, right? I mean, fundamentally, along the state versus market uh, divide uh, was a very lively one, right? Uh, uh, There were people who believed firmly in in a state-focused approach, and they tended to be okay with uh, with the Soviet Union. And and there were people uh, who were instead very skeptical and and preferred instead to focus on sort of private enterprise and and market-driven approaches. And of course, they tended to be much more in favor of building a relationship with the United States and, and actually keeping the relationship going with the uh, uh, with the former colonial powers, um, so it was very very complex and immediate. Do they do they use the
2: say the the West as a way you know to dangle? <laughs> I don't know. I kind of I kind of see like they're being you know wooed by both you know the Soviet Union but also you know the, the West. Um, the the West, of course, is more complicated because of the colonial history, but do they dangle, you know, the West as a, as a way to try to sweeten the, the relationship with the
3: Soviet Union and get things their way? Occasionally, for sure. Uh, Um, you know, I, I think, I think anyone in that position would have, uh, um, would have tried at least, right. Um, but what I find interesting is that, uh, um, sort of the soviet union and and, and the west whether the, the colonial west or or the neocolonial, <laughs> maybe in in the form of the unit of the us and international organizations i mean you couldn't get the same thing from from the west or the soviet union right i mean there 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 are sort of outlooks and approaches to in this case development was really very different uh, um, and 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 so it, it you couldn't easily go to sort of the other side and say, like, "Hey, would you would you like to finance this project?" Because I mean, they would have a completely different idea of how that thing should be done. Uh, and you know, maybe maybe the the um, the actual thing, so to say, right, a dam or or a factory or a railway or something like that, would even be the same. But sort of the process to get there, the way in which it would manage the sort of final product, would really be very very different. Uh, so choosing a side. Uh, for something meant that you were pretty much kind of stuck uh, uh, with that way of understanding the war. It wasn't easy to bring the other side in because they wouldn't quite understand it even, right? Yeah. And, and what about in your case, Natalia? Do you
2: have any of this, uh, though it's even more complicated <laughs> because of the colonial, the anti-colonial nature of the liberation movements.
0: Yeah, I mean, in my story, because we're talking about uh, literally... Uh, Portuguese-speaking African Revolution engaging in guerrilla war against uh, Portugal, a member of NATO. So there is only one place or in, in a way one place they can go to for, for weapons, right? That is the socialist countries, not just the Soviet Union, but also uh, Warsaw Pact countries, Cuba, China. But they can't really go of, you know, for military aid to, to the West, so, because there there is a limitation here, but I would say that they, of course, do um, it, it. It they do try to kind of uh, engage with with uh, with politicians in the West, and in the case of the Nordic countries, this is actually a very successful relationship. And the Soviets are really ambivalent about that. On one hand, they encourage this kind of con- contacts. Uh, And at the same time, they're very skeptical about that, including when these revolutionaries go and try to get aid and successfully do so in the Nordic countries. So because they're afraid of the appeal of social democracy increasingly in the 1970s. So I think it's a complicated story, but what's important to remember is that uh, this is not, this is, and part opportunistic but at the same time we have to remember that uh, these men men and women are trying to pursue their own projects that are homegrown so it's not just about trying to get anything from everywhere right they're trying to pursue their own uh, projects economic projects political projects but the way of getting at it is sometimes quite complicated and you know
2: and going going back to this issue of ideology and knowledge, um Natalia, how did the Soviets understand decolonization as it was being carried out in you know um against the Portuguese?
0: Yes, I would say that from you know in a very simple way, the colonization was from the Soviet perspective um, an an inevitable process of struggle against imperialism. So kind of there is a certain inevitability to that to that project and to the Marxist Leninist ideology. But I think what also mattered to the Soviets though, was not just the Euro independence, but economic sovereignty. And, uh, you know, they always would, you know, when we're analyzing their allies, or their clients, either kind of independent states or liberation movements, kind of states in the making, they really did, uh, it did matter to them the kind of economic project these clients wanted to pursue because they believed that without economic sovereignty they couldn't they couldn't be real sovereignty they couldn't be real decolonization
2: and and for development too, alessandro like you you said you know you said a couple of times how the soviets were okay that you know socialism wasn't going they they weren't advocating say uh the experience they went through in terms of you know stalinist industrialization uh, so, how did they understand and look at Africa in terms of its, you know, development, its "quote unquote" backwardness, et cetera?
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's. i, I will largely um, sort of echo what what, what Natasha said because uh, the the notion of decolonization and development uh, they went together. They were tightly linked, right? Uh, both in in the Soviet Union and, and in West Africa at the time, uh, the conquest of political independence was very important, but it was the first step. Uh, uh, the next challenge was was economic independence, economic sovereignty, uh, uh, cutting those dependency links that still. Somehow tied uh, these countries to the, to the to the former colonial colonial powers and 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 to Soviet Union the Soviet government promise to help cat uh, these dependency links offering sort of something something alternative that was the uh, that was the big driver uh, so to decolonize you had to develop uh, uh, there could be no sort of decolonization without uh, without development but but of course there could be no sort of development without uh, previously achieving political um, autonomy right I mean it could not happen in a, in, a, in a sort of classic colonial colonial setting yeah um in terms of- what did development
2: mean what did development mean
3: yeah that's a, that's another excellent question and and i would say that uh, at the time uh, again the, the soviet leadership at least and the, and the west african leaderships equated development uh, with economic growth they they had a very material uh, understanding of it. Uh, 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 I mean, Krumah gives a sort of a famous speech and he defines it in terms of you know the number of children who go to school, the number of hospitals we have in a certain city. Uh, I think he talks about the number of cars on the on the streets and, in 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 other cities and so on. So it's a very tangible. Uh, uh, it's a it's it's a very yeah material materialistic almost uh, uh, understanding of it, and 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 that's. By and large, the same idea that people in the USSR have in mind. And that's why, as long as economic growth happens, uh, 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 the political conditions are somewhat secondary. It doesn't matter if it's this. This is bourgeois uh, economic growth, uh, as long as you know this march toward progress is is set in motion. Um, to use kind of a crude metaphor that I use a little bit in the book, uh, uh, it's more NEP than five year plan. Uh, uh, that that's to give that's to give a sort of a rough idea of the thinking, hmm. right? Yeah. So uh, that's interesting. So
2: it's not based on say, I mean, it's not only based on say big infrastructure projects. You know, it's also just the development of a kind of market economy, not, I mean, market, but I mean, a consumer
3: economy of sorts. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, infrastructure is important, because, uh, uh, um, you know, everything is connected, you can't quite have something without, you know, roads and railways and electricity, uh, uh, and, and so on, right. Uh, um, but I think, you know, numerically, most of the Soviet Intellectual and economic commitment went into essentially the creation of cooperative farms, right, Uh, which is a pretty sort of... Low-level uh, t- type of operation. I mean, it's 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 running, creating, and running a relatively small uh, sort of group of people that cultivate the land, uh, and it's not even fully collectivized, right? I mean, it's technically a, a private uh, type of operation, but it operates as a cooperative. So you know, profits are shared, and and and, and you know, they share the means of production and so on. Uh, but they're private operators. I mean, that that was really the model. It's it has more of a, a more of a connection um, maybe with the Yugoslav experience home of sort of self-management that kind of idea right shy of, of full collectivization as as sort of in in the soviet union itself yeah exactly planning yeah a, a, a very statist a very state-dominated uh, way to plan uh, but but planning nonetheless yeah
2: um now both of you end your stories more or less around the same time i mean it's both in the in under brezhnev i mean for for you and natalia um, it is one thousand, nine hundred and seventy-five, and for you, Alessandro, is one thousand, nine hundred and sixty-eight. What, Natalia? What significant does this year have for you? Is just a year to stop the project because you can't go on forever, or is it? A, does it signify some kind of watershed of sorts?
0: <laughs> I think I think it is a watershed. In my story, I think it's pretty obvious in a way because in 1975, uh, the Portuguese empire in Africa formally ended after many years of colonial rule. That was the year when Angola, the largest, colony, the largest Portuguese colony and the most important one in Africa became independent. But at the same time, and of course, at the same time, it was also the year when, in Angola, you know, decolonization, you know, decolonization took place, uh, but at the same time, uh, there emerged uh, a civil war in the country. So, in fact, in 1975, Angola became a Cold War a hotspot, and with the introduction of Cuban troops uh, into the region, that fundamentally changed the geopolitics of the region and and not not geopolitics, I would say, politics of the region. It changed fundamentally for up until the late 1980s. So the book shows how this transition, a very fortunate one, of course, happened from uh, this this kind of period of anti-colonial struggle and the struggle against the Portuguese and how that turned into a civil war and also into a Cold War hotspot and also the Soviet role in the militarization of that Angolan civil war. So the collapse of the Portuguese empire here is really a fundamental shift in the politics of the region, of course, with South Africa also getting getting involved in the conflict in Angola and uh, the rest, uh, all, all of these developments surrounding that event.
2: No, now, also, Alessandro, nineteen sixty-eight, of course, is a huge year for many, many reasons. But why? What? It, how? What role does it play in your story?
3: Yeah, that's a, It's it's funny here because, uh, um, you know, I I I wouldn't see sixty-eight and seventy-five as kind of roughly the same time. I mean, I oh completely different periods in terms of sort of Soviet engagement with with, with Africa. I mean, nineteen sixty-eight in itself. Uh, from the Soviet point of view uh, uh, w- w- was not a particularly significant date uh, at all. It's it's the year It's the year in which uh, 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 Modibo Kita's government in Mali uh, uh, was overthrown in, in a coup. And that's the last radical government uh, in the region to, to go. I mean, the others have either been overthrown in coups in, in years prior or changed sort of political course already. Uh, but, but by then, uh, the, the Soviet Union had largely uh, already sort of pulled out, lost in interest uh, withdrawn uh, uh, from 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 the area I could have chosen 1964 or 1966 uh, um, I I chose to 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 um, uh, to go for the latest date because I wanted to give the fullest possible picture uh, but 68 in itself is not especially important I, I mean what what I think is important is that I would say that Soviet interest in development cooperation uh, essentially died with the Khrushchev era. Uh, Once he's gone in late 1964, and it's clear that Soviet programs in West Africa and and elsewhere uh, are not working especially well, well, that's the end of it. uh, uh, With that level of belief, that level of optimism, that level of commitment, Uh, uh, of course, you know, Sort of economic relations, including development cooperation, can never completely go out of the window. Uh, um, and, and, and Natasha talks about it, of course. Uh, but, but I would say that, especially the first few years of Brezhnev in, in power, that's the time in which interest in economic development abroad uh, really reaches a very low point uh, in, in the Soviet Union. It's not a it's not a priority at, at all. Um, so from from the Soviet Point of view, it's certainly sixty-four. That's kind of the 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 big uh, breaking point, uh, watershed movement, Yeah,
2: yeah, Natalia, you've said a couple of times, like Brezhnev wasn't so maybe not so interested in Africa. Is is that one of the main like why why does it wane? Why does the Soviet you know interest seem to lessen under under Brezhnev?
0: I think Brezhnev is an interesting figure, and to an extent, uh, in in some ex- to a certain extent, he's been a little bit I won't say misunderstood but I think he does have a certain interest in 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 African politics because he actually was somebody who uh, who went to um to Africa in um around in the early 60s and who met Nkrumah and he had kind of a, an affinity with Nkrumah so in once you know Krumah is deposed, he kind of is quite quite interested at least initially in bringing him back uh by various kind of various ways um so I think he you know he 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 is not completely completely aloof, but of course his priority his priorities are very different you know his fundamental priorities are very different he's increasingly interested. In détente and arms limitation talks, especially in the 1970s, um, and so on. So I think, uh, Brecht, but but fundamentally, of course, you know, this is this is not a priority for him, and especially once his health really deteriorates in the mid 70s and late 70s. No, he's no longer interested in, in you know, meeting and really engaging with African leaders. But I think, you know, maybe in the 60s, early 60s, he was a little bit more uh, perked up in this area. So he's not completely, uh, completely aloof.
3: Oh, just quickly, I wanted to say, I don't, I don't know if, 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 if um, Natasha agrees with me with this, but I, I'd say that... Um you know, as you move from the 60s into the 70s, um, sort of the nature of Soviet uh, interest, uh, the quality of it changes a lot, right? Uh, The economic dimension becomes more secondary and the military one becomes progressively more important, right? And, And I think that's because, that's where the Soviet Union can make a difference, right? It's not anymore necessarily about modernization of agriculture and so on. It's about supporting revolutionary struggles uh, for, for liberation. And, and there, Soviet weapons, Soviet soldiers, Soviet tactics, Soviet ideas can make a difference. Um, and so you get to 1975 and, and everything happens.
0: Yeah. Yes, I definitely agree with this, Sandra. And this is one of the arguments you know I make in this book at the same time, I wonder though, and I hope Alessandra can you know write a second book about that. What happens in the nineteen seventies and eighties with some of these big, big kind of projects that the Soviet you know developmental projects that the Soviet Union pursues in places like, like Ethiopia and um, uh, and Angola, for example. So I wonder whether the story you know that that we know or we think we know perhaps hasn't been fully written up uh, i uh, i am not saying that you know it's 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 not true but i i think we're very interested to learn more about what happens with ideas around economic development in the in mid to late 70s and 80s and how this kind of big projects because you know there is a resurgence of in a way these these kind of ideas in the 1970s, right? There is a revolution in Ethiopia. There's, of course, marxist, self-proclaimed marxist leninist regimes in Angola and Mozambique. So um, I wonder how the Soviets see those from an economic point of view in the 70s and 80s. And I think that story hasn't been fully written yet.
2: Well, you have a homework assignment now, Alessandro. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know what, uh, uh, since I since I both have you here and you, you deal with you know similar subjects but in different parts of the African continent I was I was really curious to know if you, to have you guys ask each other a question so you know Alessandro do you have a burning question you've been wondering about Natalia's work that you'd like to ask her since you, we have her here
3: on the hot seat I, I have I have many but uh, but uh, uh, I'll, I'll I'll go I'll go for one uh, I, there, there is a little bit of a backstory but I I, th- I think I think uh, N- Natasha will. Um, Appreciate it in in a way. I, I was at a conference recently, and and I went to a great panel on 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 sort of black liberation internationally, worldwide uh, during the Cold War which was a great panel, but but by the end, I was very puzzled when it became evident that most people uh, sort of on the panel really seemed to believe that the key for the end of apartheid in that case uh, uh, were American activists who who put pressure on the South African government and so on and so forth. Now, I I wouldn't want to deny the role of these people, but at the same time, I think about the Africans, and also the Soviet people were very much engaged in that struggle uh, on the ground, right? And, and also, also far away from sort of the battlefield, but also very much in the battlefield. Which leads me to the to the question, uh, I, I've read your book and I know that you, ha- you have a lot of material that you couldn't use, uh, including a lot of interviews with some of these people. Uh, in, in Cabo Verde, uh, in Mozambique, people were engaged on the ground in the liberation struggle on the African side, on the Soviet side. I think it would be fantastic if you wrote a book uh, uh, that, that that looked at liberation from below, uh, from the Soviet side and from the African side. I think it would really help uh, uh, to to complicate a little bit the notion that, that sort of the liberation of Southern Africa was largely a Western uh, uh, project, right? Uh, it, it's not really a question, but I mean, there, re- there is a question <laughs> there. Can you do it, please? <laughs>
0: yeah i very much share your puzzlement because i think we already know that you know this process was shaped to a great extent by actors on the ground in the case of south africa uh, local not just the african national congress of course but also other activists on the ground in south africa for example you know who obviously were fundamental uh, in making this country basically ungovernable I, you know, in the 1980s. So I think uh, I, I share your puzzlement at you know putting so much emphasis on Western activists and actors. Of course, they did make uh, an important uh, you know they, they they had an important role in this process. But fundamentally, I would argue that these were African actors, activists, um, and to a certain extent, African National Congress others who you know, made sure that apartheid regime was by the end of the 1980s, um, unviable in in many ways. And of course, when talking to uh, to activists, you know, from the Portuguese speaking Africa, I think they're very adamant to stress that, of course, Soviet aid was important to them. Thank you very much, especially, you know, thank you for providing us with guns with weapons. In the case of Guinea-Bissau, it really did make a difference to the war against the Portuguese, but fundamentally, it was their project, and they, you know, it was them who run and shaped this process one way or another, for better or for worse. Uh, so, it is really, of course, important to remember. But oftentimes, the kind of documents that Western researchers have, uh, you know, come for obvious reasons come from western archives so uh, it's understandable that given lack of resources and opportunities it's easier much easier to reconstruct that story from the western perspective rather than from below so i share your sentiment and i think there is a lot of room for research here which oftentimes of course requires um, a lot of resources going and speaking to people using African archives and so on.
2: Yeah, I actually I share your, your puzzlement too because you know I hear all the time about the, the role sanctions played in the end of apartheid and I'm like, but there are people who are fighting and dying on the ground, <laughs> and and this idea that it's only this outside pressure or the main factor is outside pressure always seemed quite bizarre to me as well. Uh, Natalia, do you have a question for Alessandro?
0: Well, ironically, I actually have a very similar question to, to Alessandro. I'm sorry, historians they are obsessed with archives, but I right wanted
2: I, I, I wanted
0: to ask Alessandro. I know that you've visited many um, African archives doing your research for this book. So, my question is how has your story changed, if at all, when consulting not just uh, the Russian the Soviet documents, but these African archives having have it visited and worked with them.
3: Yeah, I, I've been to two. I've been to two, Ghana in Ghana and and, and, and in Mali. Uh, um, I think what they did for me, well, m- many things, but maybe the two sort of most important contributions from my personal point of view, from from those documents, from those sources. Uh, first of all, I, I was uh, to an extent surprised to see... The level of interest in in uh, things Soviet, uh, so to say, uh, e- economics mainly. That's that's what I was looking at. Uh, um, but but it went a little bit beyond, right? I mean, you know, sort of culture, everyday life, uh, uh, political life, and and so on. I mean, that that. Is, is strong. Uh, uh, something you perceive strongly reading um, those documents. So, so, so that was one. Uh, the second aspect is a lot more practical in a way. It, it allowed me to look uh, a little bit more in detail at what was happening on the ground, right? Uh, um, I mean, understandably, uh, people, people uh, in, in government in Africa kept a relatively close eye on sort of what was happening in terms of development projects, how they were progressing, usually not very well unfortunately, but obviously there is a, there is quite a lot of information um information there the third uh, uh which should have been obvious uh, um but it wasn't to me necessarily that that sort of strongly was well you know the the the, the how to call it like the permanence of, of colonial influence uh, 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 I mean all of this analysis of neocolonialism uh, uh, that that I, I read uh, well. <laughs> I mean, it's it's it, you see them playing out in practice, right? In the way sort of colonial trade continued after independence, in the way certain officials uh, continue to be uh, people from from those countries, right? From Britain and France, uh, with, with with some exceptions, but but to a large extent, they continue to have a very uh, important place of power in, in those countries, right? And so, I think those are the three things that really uh, I feel I, I found uh, going. Now, finally, um, both of you are
2: participating in a a trend in Cold War historiography that's looking at the Cold War beyond, say, just the Soviet Union and the United States. Uh, And, you know, there's a whole team of, you know, there's many people now who are looking at it as a global phenomenon and how it plays out in different regions around the world. And what role does, say, the quote-unquote periphery play in the Cold War? So, uh, last question to both of you, you know, Natalia, what does the Cold War look like from Africa? Or how does, how does our picture of the Cold War get complicated when we include, say, African nations as agents?
0: Yeah, I think, I think it is really important because you know, overall, I think there is a lack of understanding how the continent, you know, how the history of the continent played into the history of 20th century, you know, 20th century international history and of course oftentimes you know, the cold war i would say often reinforced kind of military and autocratic rule on the continent you know it was an extent a victim you know to the cold war but at the same time african actors shaped the cold war in many in many ways in many di- different ways but at the same time i think when talking to, to people you know, f- you know, from the African perspective, I think the Cold War meant in a way a Soviet challenge to what was seen in, from the continent, a unipolar world and the world dominated by the capitalist West, which had been for obvious reasons associated with uh, exploitation, especially economic exploitation. So that's why, oftentimes, uh, even though you know many people realize that, at least in, in many cases, that economic model didn't work out. I think there is a lot of nostalgia. There is some nostalgia for that world, which was not a unipolar world, where you could, you know, sort of there was a challenge to to that uh, Western capitalism um and and what it represented, you know, as Alessandro said, of course, you know, the legacies of colonialism uh were there in the you know after the second world war, but they're still there now, so I think that's what it represented to to at least the people I spoke to on the ground,
3: yeah, uh, I mean, the cold war in in Africa, from the point of view of Africans, well, it it looks nasty. I'd say uh, it's it's there was a lot of violence uh, uh, during the Cold War in, on on the African continent, especially when compared to uh, North America and especially Western Europe, in which. There was very little violence. Uh, uh, instead, uh, you know, two of the countries I, I look at more directly—they experience a, a violent change of government at the end of the 60s, uh, directly related to the third war, uh, sort of to the Cold War in the third world. The third country, Guinea, they, they try to destabilize it multiple times. Natasha actually writes about it in, in her books. So the, the coup fails, but, but I mean, there is a lot of violence there too. Uh, you, you look a little bit further afield, and I mean, you know, you think of Congo, you think of the Angolan civil war, uh, the, the, the struggle in Southern Africa, there is open warfare uh, uh, a lot. Um, and that's something that I, I feel still today, um, maybe the general public and some uh, academic uh, readers are not fully sort of aware of, right? I mean, the Cold War is really very nasty. Uh, um, the, the, the second, and, and perhaps a, maybe more important aspect is that uh, um, a lot of the worst episodes of violence were due to foreign intervention. There is no doubt about it. You know, the, the US, the Soviet Union, Europeans, China, all... But obviously, African states and African people were very active participants uh, in in the Cold War. Uh, These political divisions ran very deep uh, in in, in Africa and and they shaped, I mean, Africans shaped the Cold War uh, just as much as they were shaped by it. Uh, Socialism was a powerful force in 20th century Africa, perhaps even 21st. And so, of course, were sort of colonialism and and, and liberalism on on the other side. Uh, The clash of those two was as violent uh, and as complex in Africa as it was in Asia, in in Latin America, and probably much more so than in Europe. Um, That's that's what I would say. Yeah.
1: That was Natalia Tilipneva and Alessandro Iandolo. Alessandro Iandolo is a historian of the Soviet Union and the world at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies at University College London. His research focuses on the USR's His research focuses on the USSR's engagement with Africa, Asia, and Latin America during the Cold War. He's the author of Arrested Development, the Soviet Union in Ghana, Guinea, and Mali, 1955 to 1968, published by Cornell University Press. Natalia Tylepneva is a lecturer in international history at the University of Strathclyde. Her research focuses on the Soviet Union's engagement with African anti-colonial movements during the Cold War and the history of socialism, especially in Africa. She's the author of Cold War Liberation, the Soviet Union and the Collapse of Portuguese Empire in Africa, 1961 to 1975, published by the University of North Carolina Press.
2: What do you think? What, int- what, what struck you about this interview?
1: One of the common themes of this podcast is about soviet specifically soviet interest in the development of africa and um alessandro kind both of them said because it was right that's basically the reason why the soviet union was interested in development in africa and like
2: i don't know morally
1: yeah yeah that there's like this more it was morally righteous and i don't know i'm maybe i'm just a cynic or something but imperialism or development even <laughs> which i just considered a, consider an alternative word for a similar you know action because it was because it's right is just a hard pill for me to swallow um but the conversation of imperialism as righteous is definitely i feel like being rehashed today um yeah
2: would you so you think you think what they were doing was imperialism?
1: I don't know all of the technical ins and outs of of these defin of the definitions of the words, but it sounds like yes, I mean there's not any reason for an economic body who has financial constraints to throw money at projects outside of itself where they don't see returns, and I feel like that is like imperialism. I mean they're looking for profit in external like kind of you know lesser developed, I guess if we're going to use that terminology, countries.
2: I think, you know, that I I think you're right in the sense of I'm not fully convinced by the Soviet involvement in Africa as a moral obligation or more I don't think the push is a moral one. I think it's there Because all powers that give aid or support to, you know, in this case, anti-colonial movements or economic development, they all go into it with a moral language, right? They all go into it with a sense of, you know, uh, duty to help these people uh, achieve independence, develop their country, whatever it may be. At the same time, I do think that it's not for you know some sort of pure altruism. They definitely want something in return um, and that in return is clearly for these African nations to see the Soviet Union as a the good guys in the Cold War and b to align themselves in whatever way when the Soviet Union needs it i think I think that is the push there so. It's, uh, it's definitely, it has, in, within the Cold War context, it definitely has imperialistic elements. Um,
1: and as Natalia mentioned, economic, trade route, and military access, I think, is a non-negligible yeah, factor. exactly,
2: exactly. Um, and, yeah, so I think I, I'm not, you know, and I don't, I don't know if, Al- I mean, Alessandro is the one who was pretty emphatic in when he said the moral, because it was the right thing to do. If I would, I would, I'm assuming if I would have pushed back on him on that, he would have qualified that answer. So, um, you know, I don't I would be surprised if he if he would reduce Soviet involvement in Africa as a just as a moral imperative.
3: But
1: it both they both seem to say that the primary push to development in Africa was basically to um, to achieve ideological success.
2: So uh, one of the, the main themes of the Cold War contest between the Soviet Union and United States, of course, is about civil. It's a civilizational conflict and it, it's a peaceful competition. It's to show those other smaller nations around the world, you know, socialism, Soviet socialism is better than American capitalism. And if you want to have a modern, developed society. And I think this is part of the, this is also one of the returns. Why, why should the Soviet Union aid Ghana in economic development? Well, because they want to show the that, Ghanians that that the Soviet system is better. Um, so I think that's a major issue for it too. Um, well, thank you for your thoughts, Margaret, on, on this interview. Um, I, I'm glad to hear that you found it interesting. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Margaret Budik. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. So, if you like this podcast, and I'm assuming if you're still listening, you do, uh, please uh, help us out and share it on social media. Tell all your friends to listen. You could also drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or at the SRBpodcast.org website and let us know what you think. And as always, we here at the SRB podcast would love to have your support. This is a nonprofit educational endeavor, and that means it relies on the support of individuals and educational institutions to keep it free to listeners and free from paid advertisements. Please help us keep it that way. So go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog and become a monthly patron. Until next week. Bye.
1: There once was a song called Arrest the President Contemporary music A hit with the kids It was a top 10 I wasn't pop then So I missed the bus a bit but politics, it was on everybody's hot this summer list And the cool kids were all rocking
3: votes I shit you knock, I was pistol whipping cops for hip hop yeah. I'm a soapbox, yelling
0: into megaphones Killing hard rocks, using carcasses as stepping stones Had to
2: promise that I'd stop holding my marches The day that Chris Columbus got crucified in golden arches My pedestal was too tall to climb off In fact, that's the reason for the high horse And from up here, I see marines and hummers on a conquest Underdogs who under bras in a push-up contest,
1: all for the sake of military recruitment. It fell at Kent State the way they targeted the students. I galloped off whistling Ohio. The rest of them stuck doing stand up at a cricket
2: convention. Who would they die for? (laughs) (laughs) Is it the same machine that leaves (laughs) the quality of blackboard? An abominable colony of cyborgs clocking up the property that i with eyesores. (laughs) But fuck, so what she die for? Oh.